So good to see you. Thanks for being here with us this morning. If you'd stand, we're going to be reading. I'm going to be reading from Luke 19, hard-hitting passage. Buckle up. You know, they're all hard-hitting, though, aren't they? But they're great passages. Luke 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, calling ten of his servants. He gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And he said to, then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. All righty, church. Keep in mind that this is not some prophet, some great man, some religious teacher. This is the living God who came to earth, who walked on water, who, who healed people, who was full of compassion and grace. This is Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead, who is teaching us. What is he saying to you and to me? Not just what is he saying to those first century hearers in the town of Jericho, but what is he saying to us today? Because this is the Word of God, not just the words the Word of God. Well, we get a clue at the outset in verse 11 when we are told that he told this parable for two reasons, because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. This is what's going on. Uh, they were thinking Jesus is going up to Jerusalem He's been talking about the kingdom. This is Passover festival. They'll be shouting out, Hosanna, save us, Hosanna. Except they're not just thinking about spiritual salvation. They're thinking about political salvation, rescue from the Romans, save us from the Romans. And they are expecting the rumor. Everybody's a buzz. Uh, Jesus is going to inaugurate his kingdom on earth. They're expecting the kingdom. And he's almost to Jerusalem. So, so he's... he's um, 
He's come from the, 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 the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the near the Dead Sea. He's, got, he's arrived at Jericho. We saw it last week with Zacchaeus. Now he's got a 17-mile final stretch through the Judean desert up to Jerusalem. And they are thinking, this is the time. This is, let this be the time. And they've been waiting centuries for this. And Jesus is going to let them know, yes, I'm the king, but I'm not coming to throw out the Romans. I'm a different kind of king. I have come primarily to die on a cross to save you from your sin, your deepest need of all. One day I will come back as king and rescue you and bring in the full kingdom, but not yet, not yet. And so he tells them this parable, this unusual parable, that, uh, you know, parts of it seem to fit Jesus. Some of, it, some, of, some of the parts don't seem to fit Jesus. One thing we need to know about the parables, they are not allegories. They're not uh, little stories that every detail applies to Jesus, but there's usually a main point. Uh, the main point is what Jesus is going for, and we're going to see that in our parable. So, he begins talking about, uh, you know, the kingdom is not coming yet. And he starts off with this story about this ruler, a nobleman. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. That's what Jesus is going to do. That's what he was going to do that final Passover time. He was going to, after that, go into uh, a far country in heaven, receive a kingdom, receive the kingdom in its fullness, and come back. Not, not now. Not now. Not yet. There will be delay. Uh, in some ways, we could call this the age of delay, the age of, uh, really, an age of mercy, because the Bible says that God doesn't want anybody to perish, but, but He's patient, He's merciful, because He, he wants others to, to, to come to life in repentance. So this is an age of mercy. But the main part of the parable is going to be Jesus is going to leave behind followers, servants like you and me, and, and, and He's going to give us resources. And he wants us to, to use his resources, not ours, his resources, to advance the kingdom until he comes back. This couple of days ago, I'm reading through the book of Hebrews in my devotional reading. And, and I, I just came to this phrase again that we see throughout the New Testament uh, where it talked about those who eagerly await his coming. And that is the spirit of the faithful followers of the New Testament, eagerly await the return of our king. And I hope that's your spirit. He's coming again. Lord, come quickly. Uh, it's, it's what we just prayed with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, may your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. The Lord's Prayer is praying for that return of Jesus and the fullness of his kingdom. So it's going to be a while. 13, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. Now, now here we're coming to the, the main part of the story that when Jesus leaves and before he comes back, he is going to give his servants gifts, resources. Uh, these 10 minas uh, to 10 servants, a mina, uh, we don't use that unit of currency, of course, and uh, uh, it was basically about three months' wages for a common laborer. So in our terms, you know, $15,000, $20,000, not an insignificant amount of money. So he takes 10 servants that are going to stay in the kingdom, to stay in his area while he's gone. He gives them $15,000, $20,000 each, and he tells them, engage in business until I come back. They are not using their money. They're using his money. It's his money. They're not owners. They're stewards. And the point for you and me, 
Uh, we have been given gifts by our king. Uh, not just financial treasure, but uh, talents, abilities, spiritual gifts, uh, natural gifts, which of course those are spiritual gifts too. They're gifts from God. We have time. We've got relationships. We've got a network. We've got, we've got knowledge. We, we've got the Bible in our own language. That's an incredible gift. We, we can freely go and worship. It's not like we're in Afghanistan or someplace. We, you know, we've got all kind of gifts and resources, and, and we are to steward those gifts of God until our king comes back. We are his servants. We're also his friends, but we, we are also his servants, and we need to be faithful servants until he comes back. So in verse 14, he tells the ten, engage in business until I come, 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So besides those servants, he had also a group of opponents, enemies, and, uh, you know, they go after him to tell the, uh, the, the big king, you know, uh, we don't want him to reign over us. A couple of things. One is that in the historical context of that day, that actually happened in Israel uh, just a couple of years before. Here's the story. When Jesus was born, Herod the Great was, was the Jewish man, he was half Jewish, half Gentile, in charge of that area underneath the Roman Empire. Herod the Great was one ruthless, cruel king. Killed some of his own kids, some of his wives, uh, thousands of people. On the day that he uh, died, he wanted, you know, 5,000 other leading rabbis and teachers to be killed so that there'd be at least some mourning going on in the city, in the country. I mean, he was cruel. Remember, he's the guy that when the Magi, the wise men, came looking for the baby Jesus, and, and he couldn't find that baby Jesus who was going to be king. He slaughtered babies in the whole area. That's Herod the Great. He had three sons that survived that when he died, he divided up his realm between those three sons. One of them was Herod Antipas, the Herod at the end of the Gospels. Another was a, was a son by the name of Archelaus. And Archelaus is the one that he gave the title king. So Archelaus was going to be king. But Archelaus couldn't just start being king because the Romans were in charge, so he had to go way back to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, after his dad died, to petition to receive the kingdom. By the way, uh, they let him rule there, but they did not give him the title of king until he earned it, and he never earned it. Now, Archelaus was also wicked, and do you know what? That the, the Jews sent a delegation after him to Rome to petition Caesar, we don't want this man to reign over us. So, you know, this has historic roots in the day. These folks will just be able to knowingly look, oh, yeah, we can imagine that kind of scenario. Uh, by the way, there is some application of Jesus, not exactly, but Jesus has opponents, enemies. He did in that day. In fact, they crucified him. He does in our day. You know, there are plenty of people who would say, we don't want him to rule over us. In fact, truth be known, they don't want anybody to rule over them. They don't want to bow the knee to their God. And so... Jesus, too, has opponents who resist him. What happens? Well, he receives the kingdom and returns. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants, these servants, to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Church, uh, you know, Jesus is not talking about uh, fictitious kings and things like that. He is talking about you and me. He's talking about his kingdom. 
And there is going to be an accountability for his servants when he returns. That is, we've been given resources, gifts, abilities, uh, treasure, time, relationships. What did you do with what you had been given while he was gone? What did you do with what you've been given? There will be a real accountability. Now, church, just think about this. Uh, we might think that life is going to go on like this forever. Uh, in our better moments, we realize that's not, be- not true because we're getting older, aren't we? You know, those of us who are older 50, you know, it's a little bit more real to us. I mean, life is not going to go on like this forever. One day you will die. One day there will be a real accounting for the life that you lived here on this earth. Let me be clear. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, there will be no judgment on your life about whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. The Bible is clear that the moment you believe in Jesus, you receive the gift of eternal life. A great way, a great passage to turn to would be John 5, 24. Jesus says this with emphasis, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He's already got it. Not going to wait until he gets to, you know, until he dies. He already has eternal life. Now, eternal life, by definition, is a life that will never end or it was never eternal, was it? So you're safe with him. And then he goes on. He, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He's already passed from death to life. We got life. You're not going to come into judgment if you have trusted Christ as your Savior. By the way, if you're here and you haven't, do so right now. Pass from death to life. Call out to a Savior, and He will give you life right now. Jesus, save me. But uh, for those of us who have done that, we don't, we don't have a judgment that we're facing about our eternity. However, there is a judgment about rewards in the kingdom according to how we lived our life on earth. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.10 is crystal clear, which says, For we... Who's we? Well, Paul is writing to the believers in Corinth, so we Christians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What we do here in this earth, in our brief lifetime, there will be rewards in heaven. Did we live for the Lord? Did we invest and use his resources to advance the kingdom? Or did we live for ourselves? The Bible is clear. Jesus is most emphatic that there are real rewards in heaven and earth. So we shouldn't despise those, minimize those, be afraid to talk about them. They're real. Okay, church, I'm your pastor, so this is the deal. One day you're going to die. You're going to have all eternity in heaven. Your rewards then are going to be based on did you live for Jesus here or did you live for yourself? So, you know, this is a wake-up call to us. You know, we can't be like our non-Christian neighbors who are just living for, you know, our retirement and our houses and our careers. We are living for the kingdom, for eternity. Um, this is what happens as he calls these guys to himself. There's accountability. Verse 16, this is the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. If he had $20,000, he's now got $200,000. Your mina, blow belongs to God, has made 10 Minus more. And uh, he, the, the ruler, said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Now, um, so he's, he's going to have uh, ten cities that he's going to reign over. By the way, one of the suggestions about what rewards will include will be 
uh, serving the Lord, reigning somehow in the kingdom of God, which will come one day in its fullness here on this earth, the new, earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Maybe it's going to be reigning for Jesus and uh, serving him in some way. We're not completely sure what rewards involve, but they will be rich and meaningful to us. He says you've got reward over ten cities. And then the second, verse uh, 18, the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And so he's just sort of giving a couple of examples uh, of, of, of his servants who were faithful investing money for the kingdom. Church, uh, we're not talking really about minas here and business. We're talking about servants of the living God, you and me. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, whether or not you lived your life to advance Christ's kingdom or your own kingdom, your, your entire rewards in, the, in eternity are going to be based and evaluated. Faithful servants don't live for themselves, don't live for their agendas, don't live for their dreams, not just about them. Faithful servants of Christ take all of the resources that we've been given and we invest them for eternity. We invest them for kingdom. You're certainly you're giving at least 10% off the top, off the top of your income. Certainly you're, you're focused on how you can reach your top five and, and uh, help the poor and, and love people around you and, and, and do all you can to invest your life for the kingdom. To the extent that you and I live for the kingdom, to that extent, uh, Jesus is thrilled and pleased and there are rewards in heaven. Now, uh, the plot gets really thicker here, this third guy that comes. Verse 19, make that 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was, afra for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant, and goes on. Now, now, that ought to just be sobering to all of us. So there are some, when Jesus comes back, who will do kind of like this guy did, who took his mina, maybe this big gold coin, tied it up in a handkerchief, buried it away in some corner of his attic or chest or something, and just buried it. Why? Because I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man. You're a harsh a taskmaster. And so he was completely paralyzed by his fear. And he just buried his talents. Church, um, Christians do that. We are paralyzed by our fear. We completely misunderstand who God is. We think of him as severe and harsh. In fact, uh, Brent and Elizabeth were so honest. Remember Brent talking about they grew up thinking there were rules and God just keeping score of all the bad things he's done. And Elizabeth saying, you know, I just grew up thinking God was a scary God. And they're not alone. That, that is the satanic lie that so many people grow up in believing. Even Christians tend to believe it. And they fear God and they're paralyzed by their fear because they're afraid God is just out to get them. And they completely take themselves out of the kingdom's efforts to advance the kingdom around the world. Now, uh, friends, if that's you, you can coddle yourself all you want and say, well, if you knew my, my parents, you know, uh, you know, I just, you knew my background and you can make excuses, but that's not going to work. What does Jesus, how does Jesus respond? You wicked servant. Wow. Really? Uh, don't coddle yourself. 
I don't care what your background was. I care uh, if you believe the Word of God or not and respond to God. The ample evidence in creation and in history about Jesus Christ who came to this earth in His great love for us. And the Bible says, but God proves His own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we know in our hearts there is a God in heaven and uh, we can choose to listen to the lies of Satan, that God is an is a evil, harsh taskmaster, or we can believe the Word of God, that He is good and loving beyond all imagination. Friends, don't let yourself off the hook. I don't care what your background is. I know it may be harder for some than others. I get that. But we are responsible to believe what God says about who He is. And it's going to make all the difference in our spiritual lives. No excuses. No excuses. I love what Ben Carson said in the Republican debate the other night. He says, my mother, who's one of 24 kids, would not let us go up with a victim mentality. You know, that's part of our culture. That's the water we swim in. I'm a victim. Got to blame somebody else. No, we take responsibility before God. I can remember as a young pastor, I was in Roseburg, Oregon, and I came to the realization, the, power, the painful realization, Jeff, you have this exalted view of God as great and holy and just and infinite, but you don't really feel He is loving and kind and tender and easy to live with. And I realized that was wrong. And I, and I began crying out to God, oh God, you've got to change me. I've got to see you as you really are. And I began a journey. And I'm so glad I did. One of my prayers that I still pray for me and for us as a church, oh God, help us to see you as you really are. And by the way, help me to see myself as I really am. Lord, help us to see you. I love Tozier's comment. And the very first line of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, my single favorite book, which is out in our bookstore, Knowledge of the Holy, he says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It is. It matters. It shapes everything. And so... We must cry out to God, oh God, show me who you really are. Show me your glory. And read the Bible with belief and, and trust in our God. Because if we fear God, if we uh, think of him as a harsh taskmaster, we are listening to the lies of Satan, and it will completely paralyze us in the spiritual life in the kingdom of God. Refuse to submit to that. But recognize that God is so good. One of the things that I do every morning when I spend my time with the Lord, highlight of my day, I begin it by what I consider, I just call it, I am, I'm immersing myself in the love of God. I just sort of begin, I, 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 Lord, I'm receiving your love and grace. I, I thank you for, for loving me like you do. Father, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Spirit, I love you. And, and at some point, I, I'll usually uh, have a, a song that I'll go to, a chorus or or I'll turn to my iPad notes, and I've got about 20 verses there on the love and the grace of God. And I'll either go over one and just go over it a lot, or maybe two or three. Verses like this, Psalm 103, 11 and 12 says this, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Or I'll go over Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or 1 John 4.10. Then this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
and, and other verses like that. And I'm immersing myself in the love and the grace of God. Church, we need to do that. Church, do not live and die and get to heaven and have your mind hit away because you saw God completely wrong. Because you spent your entire life listening to the lie of the enemy. Recognize his goodness and grace and love him back and live your life for him. Giving, serving, everything in your life. You're living for the king and not for yourself. Now, a bit later in the passage, as we come to the end, verse 27, it says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, I hope that is sobering to you. My single-hardest philosophical theological question involves hell. I wish uh, it didn't exist. I mean, eternity. Uh, it is my single-hardest question, but the Bible teaches it, and I trust my God. He knows what's up, and I believe it. But friends... There is a real heaven and a real hell. And there are some people that you and I know on our street, in our offices, maybe in our families, who are headed to a Christless eternity. And that ought to matter to us. That ought to matter to us. There is a real judgment coming about those. And and, and here's the basis of judgment. They did not want me to reign over them. There are people today who do not want Jesus to rule over them. That was, that's repeated at the start of the passage and in the last verse of the passage. Those who don't want Jesus to reign over them. They choose their own, own judgment. Friends, you've got a Savior who came to die for you so you did not have to face a judge one day. Flee now to a Savior who himself bore the penalty for your sin on a cross because he loves you. Flee now. Church, uh, strong, strong words. Jesus did not say soft things. Um, we see several things. We see that he's the king. We see that he's, he, he's, he's left. This is an age of delay. He's coming again. Uh, there's a real hell, a real heaven, real judgment. But the heart of the passage is uh, the servants of Jesus in the interim. Until the king comes back, what do we do? with what he has given us, the time, the talents, the treasures, the relationships, the the knowledge, the opportunities, the network, all that he has given you, what have you done with it? It won't work for you to say when he comes back, oh, you didn't give me much. I mean, how ungrateful is that? You know, when you raise your kids and at 18 they leave the house and, and they say to you, oh, you never gave me anything. I mean, come on, you wouldn't have survived three months. Um, that won't work to say, oh, I wasn't given much. God has given you all that he wanted you to have. What did you do with it? Did you use it for yourself or for the kingdom? Did you invest them in resources for the king? You know, there's so many people at Wood's Edge that are 10 minor people. Um, so many, I can use example. I, I chose to use Justin and Lauren Stone. Some of you know the Stones. They're a young family in our church. I partly use them because they've got three kids, one on the way, and they're in the busiest season of their lives. And he's got an active career as a petroleum engineer and doing great at his company. And, and you know, he's got plenty going on. But what fires their soul is not, you know, advancing in career and accumulating stuff and, 
you know, heading towards retirement. That doesn't fire their souls. But the kingdom of God and reaching real people who matter to God, who are headed to a crisis eternity. And so they are, first of all, all out for Jesus, loving Jesus. That's where it's got to start, loving Jesus. And, and, they, and they band in community. And, and they, for example, they, they, they're in a, a small group and uh, uh, they're, they're part of this church family. And they, uh, you know, they, they join with us on Wednesday night in prayer. They're just vitally related to, to they journey together. And, and then they're concerned to, to bring hope to the world by, by making disciples. One of the things that Justin does is he, uh, he first of all, he considers that his mission field is, uh, is the oil and gas industry because that's his people, and he loves them. He cares about them, and he's uh, involved with them, and, and, he, and he takes several of his lunches every week to uh, disciple other men there, and, he, and, and his, his vision is that these groups would grow. There are four or five there at Anadarko, that they would grow and spread, that one day there'd be a people movement at Anadarko. He knows that we're praying for 10 movements, five in Houston. He wants one of them to be at Anadarko. I mean, he's got the entire kingdom focused. He's not there so much to advance, although he's doing very well in his, his career, but he's there for the kingdom. Uh, Lauren, on, on a Sunday and Wednesday nights when they come here, and um, the kids are fine. They have a great time. We've got great children's ministry, and they've got their friends there. And, and Lauren disciples a group of five high school senior girls that she has now discipled for three or four years now. And, and she's changing lives for eternity. They're making disciples. And, and uh, they are ten minor people. And, and my point is not that, you know, am I doing what they're called to do, but am I using the resources God's given me to advance the kingdom in the way he's called me to do it? Friends, I think of J.J. Watt. J.J. Watt, you know, when he was drafted four years ago, a lot of us who are football fans are thinking, are you kidding? They, they drafted this white guy from, from Wisconsin in the first round? I mean, we never heard of this guy. And, and, um, and, and, but, but, man, he turned out to be this great player. And, and there may be other players with as, good, with as much ability, but nobody outworks J.J. Watt. I mean, the guy is there, there the first thing. He's there after they leave. He does workouts during the week. Uh, uh, after the team has done their workout. I mean, he is fully leveraging his abilities he's given uh, to be the best NFL player he can be. And you might think to yourself, okay, Jeff, if I got a $100 million NFL contract, I would work that hard. <laughs> Friends, our motivation is so much greater. That's a game. Do you know that sports, which I love, sports is the toy department of life? It's just a game. Friends, we got a real heaven and hell, and the stakes are eternal that you and I are involved with. You and I are involved leveraging our resources, our money, our gifts, our abilities for the kingdom of God. We're changing lives for eternity. This is the only game that matters, and we need to be in it. We need to be in it. Church, it's, it's between you and God. I can't stand there with you. One day, you will give an account what you did with what you've been given. Be ten minor people. Stand with me. Lord God, help us. We need your grace, Lord God. I need your grace. 
to leverage what you've given me for the kingdom. Give us each grace. Lord, help us to see you as you are, as the most loving, kind God that we could imagine. Lord, if any of us have seen you as a harsh taskmaster, may we get on our knees and repent because that dishonors you. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ, now is your time. Now is your time. Breathe a prayer. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus.